Can I return with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12? For the sake of those of you who are new with us, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we have come to chapter 12, and just kind of to quickly review, Matthew's theme is to present Jesus to Israel as their long-awaited Messiah and King. And so, of course, he starts with the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner or the herald of the king. And then, of course, we see Jesus show up in the scene then, and uh, he begins his public ministry. And for the next, really, from chapter 1 through 10, Jesus Christ is being presented to the nation. Starting in chapter 11, we see now that the nation is not going to be receiving Christ in general. The leadership has definitely turned against him. And even a lot of the people are beginning to sour on him. Why? Because they're looking for a Messiah who's going to lead them in a revolt against Rome, overthrow Roman oppression, establish the kingdom, give them all the goodies that uh, they were expecting the Messiah to give. And Jesus is talking about loving their enemies, going to the cross, denying themselves. Uh, something doesn't make sense in their mind. This guy can't be the Messiah. So, But not everybody's turning away from him. There are those who are still listening. Some who are still evaluating. They're the undecided. They don't know really what to make of Christ yet. But as we come to chapter 12, we see now that the animosity of the Jewish leadership towards Jesus is really now coming to a head. It's been simmering for a long time. It's really starting to boil. And last week we saw how that the Pharisees in particular... Uh, couldn't even contain their burning jealousy of and hatred towards Jesus, which erupted in an outrageous accusation which they leveled against him. We saw this last time. Let's back up just to kind of get a running start in today's study. But look at verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now that accusation that Jesus' power and ministry wasn't from God, but was actually from the devil, gave rise now to a teaching that Jesus gives that runs from verse 25 through verse 37, A teaching that actually, though, climaxes in verses 31 and 2. Now, before we look at those verses, let's again read. We're kind of reviewing still. Let's pick it up again in verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then? Will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Now, we looked at those verses in detail last week. So if you weren't here, get the CD. Just so you're kind of up to speed here a little bit. But let me say this. The bottom line of what Jesus is saying in these verses is found in verse 25. 
where he said, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Simple principle, and that is this. Unity equals strength and victory. Division equals weakness and defeat. And of course, Jesus Christ was applying this to what the Pharisees had said about him, that he's actually working for Satan and not from God. And Jesus said, you know, that's a really ridiculous statement to make because Satan would never send his servants out to do anything that would undermine his plans and things, right? I mean, I mean, why would Satan send out a servant of his to cast a demon out of a guy a guy that the devil has worked on for who knows how many years to get him into a paganism or the occult like he's doing today, folks. The devil is, uh, is really moving in the hearts of people in our country. We see a rise in neo-paganism. There are people who are actually going back to the pagan religions of centuries ago where they're worshiping the nature gods. Wicca is on the rise. We have occult things that are, people are getting involved in. Satan is pushing them into the Satanism, and again, uh, witchcraft, visualization, Ouija boards, uh, transcendental meditation. We see in the church uh, a push for yoga. We see Christianized yoga in the church. Uh, we see people uh, dabbling with tarot cards, horoscopes. All of these things are opening the door to demonic oppression and, in many cases, demonic possession. Now, the idea is after Satan has worked in people's hearts, so that he has deceived them into getting involved in these things, opening doors, which then eventually has caused some to be possessed. Why would he send servants then to deliver them if he's worked so hard to bring them under his control in the first place? Jesus, that's ridiculous. That I'm working for the devil, that my power is from the devil, the Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Come on. That does, you know, God has given you a brain. Use it. That's what he was saying. All right. Uh, listen to me, though. Even though Satan would never divide his kingdom against itself, knowing it would lead to the defeat and destruction of his own kingdom, even though he's too smart to do that to himself, listen to me, he is actively, actively working in the lives of God's people to divide us against each other, to bring down the work in the kingdom of God. You know, we know that theologically, but we often forget about it practically. The devil is actively working in your life this morning. Do you know that? As a child of God, to divide your marriage, your family, your church. Why? Because as Jesus said, he knows a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's why Satan's strategy has always been very simple. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. This is all part of his evil plan to defeat you. Destroy what God is doing in your life. And in the process to neutralize your effectiveness in building God's kingdom. See, we don't realize how much the devil is trying to pit us against each other. We don't really, you know, we understand he divides and conquers. We understand that the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness in the spirit realm, that we are fighting a, a spiritual war. Our enemies are not people, and they're certainly not the people closest to us. And yet I can't tell you how many Christian marriages have been divided and conquered by the devil because the devil's got husbands and wives thinking that they're really at war with each other, that they're the enemies of one another. Instead of coming together and praying against the devil who is the real enemy, because in unity there is strength and victory. Jesus said the night before he went to the cross, Father, 
I mean, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. Otherwise, how are they going to you know, bring the world to, to me? But I do pray you deliver them from the evil one who is going to be out to get them. And how does God give us strength against the evil one? He says, Father, make them one even as you and I are one. Father, bring unity among them because when they're unified, we know they're strong. And yet the devil is actively involved in doing the very thing that we know he's trying to do, but we fall into it all the time. I mean, do you realize in real combat, real warfare, there is a certain percentage of of soldiers that are killed by their own comrades on purpose? No. It's called friendly fire, though. In the heat of battle, every soldier knows. You sometimes mistake your own guys for the enemy, and when that happens, the result of devastating friendly fire. Do you know how many Christians have been taken out by friendly fire as we fight against one another? Instead of coming against the real enemy, we turn on each other. How many churches are divided against themselves so that Satan then brings them down? Satan knows he can't. You know, Jesus said, against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. Unless, and I'm going to tell you what I know the Lord was saying, if you're unified, the devil's not going to be able to get you or or defeat you. But if you're not unified, then the gates of hell are, are going to prevail. You will not stand as a divided marriage, divided family, a divided church. Look what he's doing in our nation. Look at the division politically he's bringing into this country or is brought in that's destroying our nation. So the devil is actively involved in trying to do Look, I don't know what kind of problems you brought here this morning. I don't know what shape your marriage is in. I don't know what shape your family is in. But if there is conflict, there, there is division, know this, the devil's at work. Now you can either put the brakes on, see it for what it is, come together and begin to pray against him, or you can play right into his hands, and he'll wind up dividing and destroying your marriage, your family, your church if you're visiting with us. That's how he works. Paul the Apostle says, we're not ignorant of the devil's methods. Well, I know Paul wasn't, but often we are. As Christians, we must not be ignorant of his methods either. All right, I want to use the rest of our time this morning to focus on verses 31 and 2. Because they are really at the heart of, in the climax of what Jesus Christ is saying in this whole passage from verses 22 through 37, basically, or what is being taught. Uh, Let's read verses 31 and 2, where Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. These two verses bring up some important questions that we need to address. First of all, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Number two, how does a person commit this sin? And number three, why is it the only unforgivable sin? Let's begin by defining what blasphemy is and what God has said about it. The word blasphemy is a transliteration of a Greek word that literally means to speak harm. To speak harm, as in slandering, defaming, or verbally abusing another person. It was used in Greek culture often of one person speaking evil against another person, but primarily in the biblical context, it speaks of verbal contempt and disrespect for the person and character of God Himself. 
That's why we almost exclusively think of blasphemy as directed against God and God alone. In the Old Testament, blasphemy was a capital offense punishable by death. I'll just read you one verse, Leviticus 24, verse 16, where it says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who was born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. So that was under the Old Covenant, that blasphemy was always punishable by death. And yet, Jesus said under the New Covenant, God will even forgive the sin of blasphemy if it's confessed and repented of. Remember what John said in 1 John 1 verse 9? He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Not all unrighteousness except blasphemy. All unrighteousness, right? In fact, we know that's true because the Apostle Paul experienced that very forgiveness. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul is recounting his life before Christ. He was describing himself and what kind of a person he was. He says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, yet I obtained mercy. In other words, I received forgiveness. As Paul came to Christ, repented of his sins, God forgave him of his blasphemies. He blasphemed the Lord Jesus Christ. He claimed that Jesus Christ was a phony Messiah, that he was uh, a false god. Christianity was a cult. Until God met him on the road to Damascus and changed his mind. But until that point, Paul had some very strong uh, feelings about Christ, some very strong words directed at Christ. He was a blasphemer. And yet, when the Lord Jesus appeared to him, Paul saw things in their right perspective. Paul confessed his sin, repented, and he was forgiven. That's because Jesus himself said in verse 32 that even blasphemy against me is forgivable. He said, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man it will be forgiven him. However, he said there is one form of blasphemy that is unforgivable, and that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible says this is the only unforgivable sin a person can commit. Let's read verses 31 and 2 again. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Listen, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. This age would include the time we're still living in. It was Jesus' day up to and including today. The Jews divided history into two parts. The present evil age, where man was basically in control, although we know that's not true. God's on the throne. That's the only thing that gives me comfort these days, all right? But the Jews looked at this present time as this present evil age, a time when man's rebellion was running rampant and lawlessness was abounding. They were looking forward and still are, and so are we as Christians, to another age, a new age, the kingdom age, where the Lord would reign from Jerusalem, the Messiah, visibly. And there would be justice on the face of the earth, and the knowledge of God would cover the earth like the waters of the sea do now. And then the Bible says no one will have to say to his neighbor, come and know the Lord, because everyone's going to know me from the least to the greatest. So that's the coming age, right? The millennial kingdom age. 
But Jesus said, this one sin is so serious, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it can't be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Now, some have inferred from what Jesus said in these verses that the Holy Spirit is more important than Jesus because blasphemy against the Son is forgivable, but blasphemy against the Spirit is not. Now, and that's not true. The Spirit of God is not more important than Jesus. And I think you'll understand uh, what Jesus was talking about, though, as we move through this and we answer some more of these questions. All right, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And folks, let me just say to you, that depends on who... The answer to that depends on who you talk to. Different commentators have differing views on what this sin is. In fact, as you read some of the commentators, you will discover many don't even think it's possible for this sin to be committed anymore. Many believe it was only possible in Jesus' day to be committed. Now, I don't agree with that, and I'll show you why in a moment. But listen, if this is the only unforgivable sin, we had better know what it is so we don't commit it, right? You say, okay, what is it? You got my attention. Well, to understand what this sin is, all we need to do is look at the context in which Jesus mentions it. And the context comes out of verses 22 to 30. Now, we've already read it. Let me just review quickly. The passage opens up with Jesus casting a demon out of a mute and blind man so that the man's sight and speech were restored. Now, this caused the crowd to begin to wonder. They begin to buzz among themselves. Could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? Why did they say that? Because they knew. In the Old Testament, God had promised, and I'm thinking primarily of Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, they knew that God had said, you will know the true Messiah when he comes, in that he will open the eyes of the blind, he will cause the mute to speak, he will cause the deaf to hear, he will cause the lame to leap for joy, and so on, the blind to see. These will be the evidences of the true Messiah. And of course, after he does the miracles, he will speak the truth. Now, you've got to be careful with this. Because there is coming a false Messiah, isn't there? What do we call him? The Antichrist. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, he's also going to have miraculous abilities. In fact, he's going to be able to do lying signs and wonders. These are miracles that will be attached to his lies. The difference between the false Christ, the Antichrist, and the true Christ, the true Messiah, when the true Messiah showed up, not only would he have the power to work the miracles, but he would lead into all truth. He would speak the truth. In fact, he would be the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus Christ was the truth. The crowd began to buzz among themselves. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? I mean, he's doing everything that was prophesied of the Messiah. He's doing the miracles. He's preaching the, the truth. Well, the Pharisees, when they heard that, were furious and responded by saying, this man doesn't cast out demons by the power of God, but by the power of the devil. To which Jesus responded by rebutting the logic, their logic that Satan would do things that would undermine and destroy his own kingdom. It was then that Jesus talked about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The therefore at the beginning of verse 31 tells us that what comes next is connected and in fact is the conclusion of what Jesus Christ has just finished saying. In other words, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit comes on the heels of what the Pharisees said at the end of verse 24. This man does not 
cast out demons by the power of God. He casts out demons by the power of the devil. Therefore, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit against the Holy Spirit is connected with attributing the work and the power of the Spirit with the devil. You say, you're, you're losing me. All right, hang on, right? The works that Jesus Christ did on the earth were all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, let's turn to Luke 3. Because if you don't understand this, you're not going to understand this whole passage, right? Let me show you a couple of things. You, you get a, a good understanding background-wise so you know what Jesus is actually saying in Matthew 12. In Luke 3, we see John the Baptist down by the Jordan River baptizing. In verse 21... It says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And so here we see the Trinity. We see the son being baptized, the spirit in the form of a dove coming down and staying upon Jesus, landing upon him. The Father from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Turn to Luke 4. And we pick it up in verse 14. Now, this is now just after Jesus being baptized and the Spirit of God coming upon him. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Remember, he returned in the power of the Spirit, a statement that indicates he came to Galilee to work miracles. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region. Well, we know later on in Mark, uh, in Luke 4, what he does is he goes to Galilee and he goes to Nazareth, the town where he grew up, enters the synagogue on the Sabbath. And because he was a rabbi, it was customary to let the visiting rabbis read the scripture verse for that particular week. So they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up to find what we call Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free, to open the doors of the prison, and so on and so forth. Jesus Christ now was anointed. The work he was about to do was going to be done under the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything he did, every miracle he worked was done under the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Number one, to use his own divine power would have blown his humanity, blown his mission. He had to avail himself of the same power that we avail ourselves of, which is the Holy Spirit. But I want you to understand, to fully understand what, the, what blasphemy against the Spirit is, we need to understand what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. So turn to John 15. Now, in John 15, they're in the upper room. Or actually... They're actually on their way to the Mount of Olives by this time. They've left the upper room. The evening started in the upper room as they observed the Passover. And at that point, Jesus began to give them a final teaching before the cross. He said to them, I'm going away soon. And where I'm going, you can't come with me. You can't follow me. Not yet. I'm going to come back for you, though. I'm going to go. You can't follow me, but I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send to you another helper, the Holy Spirit. John 15, verse 26 And when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, listen, he will testify of me. That will be his ministry. Not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to me. 
Turn to John 16. Because Jesus picks up this idea. John 16, verse 14. Jesus said, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Listen. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus. It is to bear witness to the people of this world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he is the Savior of the world. That is the Spirit's ministry. He said he will not come to draw attention to himself. That's why some churches who are always drawing attention to the Spirit, they are not really following what God has said. Because when you come to a church and the Spirit's the focus and people are jumping off the pews and and swinging from the chandeliers all in the name of the Spirit, you are in a church that is not biblically focusing on who they should be focusing on, which is Jesus Christ. The Spirit does not want to be the center of attention. He wants to draw your attention to Jesus Christ. And as the Holy Spirit begins to bear witness to a person's heart of this truth, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And sometimes the Spirit of God, as he bears witness to a person's heart of this reality, he'll do it by pointing to others who are saved, who have undergone these radical transformations as they've given their hearts to Christ. Oftentimes, people that were written off by their families and society as hopeless alcoholics and drug addicts, people that were hopelessly in bondage to pornography or sexual sin or gambling or some other vice. And as the Spirit of God begins to point out these people and how their lives have been radically transformed because they received Christ, He's bearing witness to these people's hearts. Look, this is true. Jesus Christ is real. And if you will receive Him into your heart as your Lord and Savior, He will transform your life as well. Of course, sometimes the Holy Spirit might even use a miracle, like we saw in our passage this morning, to get a person's attention, to get a hold of their heart, to show them that Jesus Christ is alive, He's real. And he wants to save them. And as the Holy Spirit is working in these people's hearts, trying to bear witness of Jesus, oftentimes they're rejecting everything the Holy Spirit is trying to do. They're rejecting you know, the ministry of the Spirit. Uh, they're rejecting all the things he's trying to use to open their eyes and to soften their hearts, but they keep pushing the Spirit away. They keep denying his ministry. As they do that, folks, listen to me, they begin down the path that will eventually lead to the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is not any one sin. It is a process. A process that leads to a conclusion. A process where each time a person says no to Jesus, as the Spirit bears witness of him to their heart, and again, maybe he's using all kinds of things. I mean, transform lives. He's using people at work that are giving you tracks. Or he's using some program on television. Or maybe even you receive a, a healing of some kind. Or somebody close to you receives a healing. All of this is designed by the Holy Spirit to show you God is real. Jesus is alive. He wants to keep bearing witness to your heart, drawing attention to Jesus, drawing you to Christ. But as people keep resisting, keep resisting, Every time they resist the work of the Spirit, their heart gets a little harder. And a little, a little harder still. And a little harder still. Until at one point their heart becomes so hard, they pass what I'll call the spiritual point of no return. At that point, they not only will not believe, listen, now they cannot believe. And that, folks, is eventually what happened to the scribes and Pharisees. Turn to John 12. 
In John 12, we read in verse 37, talking of these very Pharisees, but although he, Jesus, had done so many signs, that's a word that means miracles, before them in their sight, they did not believe. They wouldn't believe. They refused to believe in him. And then verse 39 says, eventually, therefore, they could not believe. See, the scribes and Pharisees had repeatedly denied the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And with each denial of who Jesus was and the corresponding rejection of him as their Savior, well, every time they rejected Christ and denied the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, their hearts grew harder and harder until they passed the point of no return. At that point, it was no longer a matter of they wouldn't believe. Now they couldn't believe. Look, God can do nothing for those who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior in the face of the overwhelming evidence and the constant witness of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I mean, if you're going to continue to reject the truth, if you're going to continue to reject Jesus in the face of the overwhelming evidence, Peter says our faith is built on many infallible proofs. It's not a blind leap into the darkness as so many try to say it is. Our faith is built on many infallible proofs, evidences. But if a person continues to reject the evidence, reject the witness of the Holy Spirit time and time again, what is God supposed to do? What is he supposed to do? You know, commentator William Hendrickson says of these people, he said, and I quote, Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him or her to cry out, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But when a man has become hardened, so that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to the Spirit, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition, end quote. It is a path. It is a progression. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not any one sin. It is a progress, a progression, where your heart becomes harder and harder the more you reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Look, it's not that God doesn't want to save you. He sent His Son into the world because He loves you and wants to save you. It isn't that Jesus didn't die to pardon you of your sin. It's just that these kind of people refuse God's forgiveness and they reject Jesus' pardon. So when they wind up going to hell, whose fault is that? I don't understand how a God of love can do that to people, send them to hell. Uh, Hello, a God of love is not sending you to hell. You're choosing to go there. Look, all God can do is provide a pardon. He's not going to force you to take it. Let Let me tell you a true story. I've read this before. Let me read it again. Around the year 1830, a man named George Wilson killed a government employee who caught him in the act of robbing the mail. He was tried and sentenced to be hanged. However, President Andrew Jackson sent him a pardon. But Wilson did a strange thing. He refused to accept the pardon. And no one knew what to do. I mean, that had never happened before. Nothing like that had ever happened before. Where a condemned criminal was offered a pardon and he refused to take it. They're like, well, what do we do now? Do we force him to take it? What do we do? 
Well, the case was carried all the way to the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Marshall, perhaps one of the greatest justices ever, wrote the court's opinion. Uh, in it, he said, and I quote, A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. And so he was. Marshall, I think, came to the right conclusion. You can offer a person a pardon, but you can't force it on them. And the, right, the righteous judge of all the earth does the same thing. Through the blood of Christ who propitiated the righteous standard of God, God is offering to the human race a pardon, the whole human race. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, the Bible says. Now, you don't have to take that pardon. You can deny it. You can reject it. God will not force it on you. Is there if you want it. But you don't have to take it. But if you don't take it, don't blame God for where you wind up. You know, let me kind of sum this whole section up as we close. With something one of our Calvary pastors uh, has said, and I quote, he said, What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It is when you come to the wrong conclusion that the reason miracles are happening, people are changing, and the mute are speaking is due to some kind of hypnotism, demonic activity, or mental delusion. And you begin to blaspheme what the Spirit speaks in your heart when he says to you, no, no, it's real. Jesus is real. He's true. If you ignore the Spirit's voice in your heart and say, ah, those people at Calvary Chapel are being brainwashed. Those believers are under some kind of delusion. Well, there comes a point where you will have said no one too many times to the Holy Spirit. There comes a point when the unpardonable sin has then been committed. What does it mean? It means the Holy Spirit will no longer speak to you. You see, in Genesis chapter 6, God declared, My spirit will not always strive with man. He's not always going to speak to you about your need for salvation. Therefore, if you keep saying, those people are just being emotional. Uh, they just imagine they hear from God. They're off the wall. Well, eventually, you will commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and you will be damned then forever. You can only hear the message and see the miracles so many times before God will finally say, okay, have your way. You don't want to acknowledge my reality very well, my spirit will no longer speak to you. And then you will be lost forever. At that point, you not only will not believe, at that point you cannot believe. In Jeremiah 7.16, God said to Jeremiah, Don't pray any longer for this people. There is no longer any hope for them. There comes a time, we know not when, and a place, we know not where, when a man's fate is sealed and any hope for salvation is gone, you can't play games when the Spirit is drawing you, end quote. Well, you can, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Now, let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you have not received Jesus yet as your Lord and Savior, and you don't even know why you're here. I don't know. Maybe somebody dragged you. Maybe you had some compelling reason to come and make fun out of us to just prove that, you know, I'm going to go sit in these service, this church service because, you know, it's going to confirm everything I've always believed about these Christians are all nuts, you know. I'm just going to sit here and make fun out of them in my heart. I don't know why you're here, but I'm glad you're here. 
In fact, it's good that you're here. Because if you had committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, if you had hardened your heart so many times to the point where now it was hopeless, guess what, folks? You would be so far from here. A person who has committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, spiritual things do not interest them in the least. They don't want to hear it. They want to run from you because they could care less. They have no interest in anything God has said. So the very fact that you're here this morning indicates to me you have not yet committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But listen carefully. Don't push it. Don't push it. Let me read another true story. Okay? I thought this was very interesting. True story. It goes like this. During World War II, an American naval force in the North Atlantic was engaged in heavy battle with the enemy with enemy ships and submarines on an exceptionally dark night. Six planes took off from the carrier to search out those targets, but while they were in the air, a total blackout was ordered for the carrier in order to protect it from attack. Without lights in the carrier's deck, the six planes could not possibly land. They made a radio request for the lights to be turned on just long enough for them to come in. But because the entire carrier, with its several thousand men, would have been put in jeopardy, No lights were permitted. When the six planes ran out of fuel, they had to ditch in the freezing, icy water of the North Atlantic, and all crew members perished into eternity. End quote. And folks, let me just say this to you. There also comes a point where God turns out the lights of his truth in a person's life. Again, many people love darkness rather than light because they want to live unrighteously. God loves them. He sent his spirit to draw them, to reason with them, to use other people's changed lives to be a witness for them. Maybe even work a miracle in their life to show them that he's real, he's alive, Jesus is true. Yet they keep slapping God's hand away, who's offering them, extending his hand to them, saying, come to me. I want to deliver you from the wrath to come. I want to save you from what is coming. I want to invite you to be a member of my family forever. Yet they keep slapping away the hand of God, keep denying the truth. At one point, God says, if that's what you want, well, then God just simply turns out the lights. And now they cannot see the truth. I mean, now there is no longer any hope for salvation. All opportunity to be saved is now gone. And that's why the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. If God is speaking to you right now, don't harden your heart any longer. This may be the last chance you will ever get. Oh, I got plenty of time. You know, I'm a young person. I got plenty of time to make that decision. Really? Tomorrow was promised to nobody. Your life is a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. So a lot of people who thought they had time, who found themselves maybe in some kind of a horrible wreck that took their life unexpectedly and did not give them any time to receive Christ before they died. If you're here this morning, it's because there's still hope for you. But please don't push it. Please don't play games with your eternity. The Holy Spirit, if he's speaking to your heart right now, it's because God loves you and has given you another opportunity. 
receive Christ and you will be filled with the Spirit. You will become a member of God's family. And I'll tell you what, you will know where you will spend all of eternity. Father, we thank you that you are a long-suffering, patient, and gracious God, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Lord, I pray for everybody in this room this morning, or everyone who will hear this on, on CD or on the radio, that Lord, those who are on the fence, those who think they have time, those who are playing games, Father, work in their hearts that they would become deadly serious about this decision. And not wait a second longer before getting to their knees, confessing their sins, and receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, we praise you for opening our eyes. We praise you for your goodness and grace. And Father, we ask that you will now continue to lead us in the right path for your glory. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.